Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Josh Baer. Uh, his latest work is the Suspect Device Anthology, which he uh, self-published with the help of some fine Kickstarter folks, as well as, actually I say it's a second su- Suspect Device, uh, Raw Power from um, Box Brown's, um, whatchamacallit, Retrofit Comics, also supported by some generosity through Kickstarter as well as uh, I think you're in Rub the Blood, aren't you? And, yep. And uh, a whole bunch of mess of other stuff. The uh, ROM comic. Yep. As well as, what are the names on those? Uh, bike r- Rider and... Oh, Bike Rider, The Fighter. Those are my first uh, self-published comics. Okay. Um, yeah, a bunch of different stuff. Yep. Thank you for joining me today, Josh. Thank you. Now, before getting into comics, um, I kind of want to know more about your background because you've been doing art, from what I can tell, for a while. Um, obviously, looking at your website and seeing that you've done work for a bunch of music videos, I guess. Was it your brother? Yep. Directed? 
Yeah, yeah, my brother's really a successful video director and a commercial director and film director. So you'd done like um, what is Sm the Smashing Pumpkins? Yep. And Garbage. Uh, Metallica. Um, uh, uh, garbage, a lot of 90s stuff. Um, actually, I was just in L.A., and he asked me if I could stay a couple extra days to do to do some uh, uh, art stuff for this Green Day video he's about to direct, but uh, it didn't work out. I had to get back. So, um, also, also did stuff for uh, Rome, HBO's Rome. And was that also with him, or was that a separate... That was, I'm sorry, say again? Was that also with your brother? No, no, it was just something that came about through somebody seeing a painting of mine um, and them contacting me while I was in New York. And it actually happened, you know, the Rome show was going on the air and I got a call when I was living in New York and it was 2005 and I was just about to take my first comic book art course at SVA. And I had this conflict because they wanted me to come out and stay in LA during the time when the comic book hothouse was running. So I had this conflict, because, uh, which I resolved by asking them if I could stay here, do the work from here. And they said, yeah, yeah, it's better probably, they were really willing to work with me. It's better if you stay in, out in New York and work where you're comfortable. And um, so I just did a bunch, they offered me $5,000. I did basically, I did what I had done for years in LA, which is I just, I, spread a bunch of paper out on the floor I did a bunch of crazy rough um, you know kind of faux primitive, primitive graffiti like drawings and uh, then, then the funny part was at the time I was really computer illiterate, illiterate. so when it came, came time to send them scans I got a bunch of disposable cameras, took pictures of the art, had them developed then had them turn into JPEGs and you know tried to send them to them but I didn't understand the difference between Photoshop and JPEG of PSD and JPEG at the time so I was I was by, by today's standards I was pretty unprofessional so they accepted my work and told me I was doing great and then the next thing I know they were like well you, you did everything we need and you're, that was great thank you then the then the the TV show came out and they had gotten somebody else to do like half of the primitive looking drawings and um, so I, I you know chalk it up to how much hell I put them through like not understanding a difference between Photoshop documents I, I, I'd, I'd write them and say hey I sent you the stuff did you get it and they'd say no and I'd send it to them like 40 times in a row so I, uh, I was pretty much the antithesis of professional <laughs> um, so did you do like what got you to that point I'm curious like you said you're doing paintings like kind of primitive style and I can kind of see that in some of the videos sure. that you post so I'm curious like what's your background there like before getting into comics because it seems like you're kind of going into comics and kind of reverse from what a lot of other people's experiences are well, let's see. I started, I just said in this other interview the other day, and it's true. I, I uh, was like 17 and I was doing comics. And I, uh, 18, 19, 20, I was doing comics. And um, then I kind of backed off from them and tried to learn a different studio practice. And uh, I spent my 20s mostly doing 
this other type of work. And honestly, it was partially, uh, I moved to LA. Uh, my brother was letting me live at his house and he really was biased towards me doing more fine art stuff. And um, he was like, he thought that that's what I was meant to do. He, and he had a lot of faith in me establishing his identity as this kind of primitivist artist. And um, I tried to work like that, you know, um, but I kept on feeling the calling towards comics. And I did that work for a while, a long time, and tried to get into galleries and stuff. And um, then when I tried to get back into comics, I started feeling the call more and more and more. I found that I'd sort of locked myself out. I couldn't remember exactly how I did it. So, um, I mean, it used to be I'd just sit down and get, I just, I don't know, I just get up, got, I talked to some artists and they work the same way. You just have a sort of unnameable knack for it where you just make them up and it flows out of your pen and you don't have to do pencils. And that's how it used to work for me. And uh, I forgot how to do that. So the thing to do seemed to be to uh, go back to school uh, at SBA. And I started, I was like 35 by the time I took my first comics class and properly started to learn how to, how to, you know, build up a comic from the ground up. Do you know, uh, it's interesting when folks kind of start comics later, like I just found out recently, Spain didn't do his first comic till he was 27. Wow. So... It's all right to start a little later, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> um, so what were you reading when you were young? Like, what was uh, your initial calling to comics? Um, well, I... Uh, we had, we had a, you know, in the 70s, we had a lot of the uh, classic collections that were available at the time. There was two Smithsonian books. There was Jules Pfeiffer's Great Comic Book Heroes, and uh, we had all of those at the house. Also, uh, was it Scribbly or Skippy? Um, so crazy 1920s or 30s comic. It'll come to me. I, I think his name was Skippy or Scribbly. And uh, that one also, there's a, oh, and the Buck Rogers book, which I've since reacquired. Um, you know, my dad worked at a library. Whenever I go to visit him at his office, I'd go find the one little shelf where they had comics and I'd look at these books. The humor section. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, so I was, luckily I was exposed to a lot of, you know, really early, early comics early on. So that's still part, still part of my, just the whole way my brain works. Um, when I think artists tend to rework images from their childhood a lot. And it's not too hard for me to recall, like, you know, the weirdness of, of encountering the yellow kid and, putting him into my work in a kind of, um, you know, in a way that I have a lot of affection for, in a way that I have a lot of genuine interest about. So, um, but I read everything I could get my hands on all the way through high school. Mm -hmm. Oh, and uh, when I start, I was really inspired by Mark Bayer, um, his stuff that was being reprinted in Raw. So when I started doing comics, when I was getting out of high school, it was all me trying to do that flattened Mark Bayer <laughs> primitive style. And... Um, I had some, some con you know, I remember uh, encountering some work like, I wish, I wish this was, I wish I had a reference for this that I could show on the screen, but um, I remember staring at uh, the art that was done for Henry Rollins, like limited edition books, like You Can't Run From God, where it was done in this kind of social realist-like style, 
And I remember looking at this stuff and just feeling like the kind of arty primitivism I was doing was such bullshit, um, which isn't, you know, it, it's, it, not, you know, it's not entirely true, but I think it, it kind of helped throw me into balance being exposed to stuff that had that, that was, uh, you know, drawn in that way. I wish I was it petty bond stuff. No, it wasn't, but it was after he left black flag and he still wanted to have somebody who had, um, had a lot of his work had a lot of the same authority and austerity that Pettibones did without repeating himself. So he got people who did stuff that was like kind of looked almost like her block. Like it was still rooted in classical American cartooning. One was a cover for You Can't Run from God, where there's a sequence where he describes how much it would, you know, how much it would perk him up on a long road trip if he could see a body in the road every now and then instead of just seeing roadkill, you know? <laughs> I, I, I read Get in the Van. Okay. <laughs> and he had, an, he had the artist on the cover do this amazing image of a tire going over a body. And I just used to stare at this image. It, was, it wasn't like the body was muscled like you'd see in a Marvel comic. It was like an untoned human body. It's not something that was normally represented in in comics it was absolutely awesome it's like immaculately drawn mm -hmm. the art for uh, hot animal machine machine was also amazing that was mark mark's mother mark mother's bond oh, and from uh not, not Devo. yeah okay and uh shit that was such a good piece whoops you still there yeah okay cool and um uh, what was the other one? Also the cover for Lifetime, which had two big hands gripping the planet Earth. This thing's really... Um, I, I, I thought it was art that was not being represented a lot. Uh, it, was, it was very, like I said, austere. It was very much a throwback to you know, a conservative type of cartooning. And at the time, that looked really radical to me. I was used to seeing all this flattened, you know all this flat and primitive like, kind of post basket yeah yeah what like there was an issue of love and rockets where i think what's his name um ray is like complaining about these jazzy mtv new wave shapes that people expect them to make in art I, I think it was like that there was a lot of that voice in cartooning so i sound like a crank because that stuff is still very has a presence and of course a, a, so much of it is wonderful but I also, um, you know, I wanted to find it. I wanted to find something that was uniquely was was a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more um, unique. Were you into punk rock at the same time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was into. I mean, in high school, I was into like a lot of four AD stuff, kind of, you know sort of like the equivalent, like sensitive, you know, arty, melodic music for sure. And then, you know, by the time I got out, out into the real world and was on my own and had some cool friends who turned me on to good stuff, I, I got into, um, you know, I got into stuff that was more like roots rock and roll, like Motorhead. And I mean, Black Flag, the first time I heard them, I was like, this guy, this is macho bullshit. This is, this, this is like the type of guys who bully me in high school. And then, um, you know, having a breakthrough, I listened to it and realized, uh, you know, realized that you could see around the, if you peeked around the corner, you could see what, uh, 
what how arty they were. Mm-hmm. Then I got into some like a lot of hardcore, and I was like, every, I'd listen to a band like Agnostic Front, and I'd say, well, these guys, they're not arty at all. They're kind of lunkheads, but then they had such great lyrics, especially on a few of their albums. And um, then I'd be like, well, they're smart in their own way. You know, I, I thought I was really, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of had this pretension about me. And then I started realizing a lot of hardcore was really amazing in my book. But, yeah. Um, so that stuff all influences my identity as well. Um, it's funny, like, I could feel, like, the black flag in there, like, the first time I saw you work, and then I could kind of see the little things in there, and then you had the one book that's basically all about how black <laughs> flag plays a role in that guy's... Um, and bike rider. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Do they, is it kind of like an amalgamation for you of just because like the interesting thing with Black Flag especially um, and I know we could probably have the same conversation right now with Jaime Hernandez is like you kind of got the mix of this music and then you've got like these really uh, bold covers the Pettibone covers it's a great point yeah it's a great point and um, it's funny because when you said that just now I, I just that image of the Love and Rockets issue maybe 17 where it's a black and red cover of the Jerusalem Crickets playing. Mm-hmm. And, oh my God, that was the first issue I bought. And looking back, I didn't think about it now, but it's very much like, um, it's so much like a Pettibone approach. Well, I mean, he, they were living in LA or going to LA into the punk yep. scene and doing punk flyers and stuff. So definitely. That's a great, yeah, it's a great point. I don't know where I'm going with it. <laughs> But uh, one thing I should mention too is, you know, Jesus Christ, Pettibone was the biggest icon to me growing up, yeah. and I still think, I still think, um, even the relatively meager success that he had in the late '80s to me was massive because I grew up in Ohio and I remember getting his books handed to me by, um, you know, just hearing about him through word of mouth having them handed to me by like a, a circle of people. Um, my friends told me about seeing them and then I'd see them at people's houses, the actual zines. And I was like, even that meager success to me was completely enormous. And I remember having a sense of this guy. I knew that this guy, he was like Woody Allen at the time. He was like, I just saw this documentary about Woody Allen and they're like, he does a movie. And by the time the critics are saying what they have to say about it, he doesn't give a fuck cause he's going on to the next movie. And Pettibone was the same way. He was just, pushing and pushing and doing one issue after another of his comic and Daniel Johnson was the same way with his tapes and I was like that's that's success so even now when I do you know I'll do a print run of a thousand or something I always say to myself if it fails um, I try to remember I try to remember like how uh, those guys just kept on going no matter what and they were doing it on photocopiers and they were too too you know, blinded by their ambition to see that they had such a chance of failing. I just love that. And uh, Petty Ben eventually became somebody that I had I met in LA and he became kind of one of my first mentors. So I I met him in ninety eight and at the time he was coming out of a period where he uh didn't talk to anybody for 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 I would would every story I heard was that Pettibone would hang out with you for two days and say like seven words and you know two of them would be I'm hungry 
And I heard that again and again. I talked to a dude who knew his dealer and said the dealer said he had been his dealer for seven years and Pettibone had spoken about 200 words to him. And uh, Rollins also said it in his, in his, uh, in a lot of the journals. I think he has a passage about that and get in the van. So, um, Pettibone was coming out of this phase and was getting a lot more verbal. A friend of mine saw him talk in Chicago. And then next thing I heard, he was teaching a workshop at Cal Arts. And I heard about that through, a, um, through somebody I was dating. And I went, I was at the time I wasn't driving, but I was like, I need to go to the, over to the school and crash his course and sit there even though I'm not enrolled. And so that's what I did. <laughs> I, I sat in the course and there's a bunch of, bunch of kids. There's like six people, like six people who came out to see this legendary artist teach, teach them how to do art. But that's Cal Arts for you. Yeah. And so, and half of them, I think by the second day, there was two of them left. I mean, really, really, um, whatever. So they, uh, Pettibone overheard me, like the guy who gave me a lift, uh, which he probably did a curry favor with my brother. Um, he, at the, net, at the end of the class, he came over and I was like, can you give me a lift tomorrow? And he was like, I can't do it two days in a row. This is 50 miles. Pettibone overheard that. And he was like, oh, you know, you need a lift. I'll, I'll give you a ride. That's how he talks. And um, he, the next day he had me, it was before I had a cell phone. I was waiting on the street on Lincoln Boulevard and he pulled up at seven o'clock in the morning with his dad driving. His dad, Regis, who's passed away since. And it was completely, I was so, I couldn't have been happier. In the back seat of this guy's car, asking him about old stories about punk rock and He's completely willing to, you know, completely willing to open up and talk about everything from Henry Rollins living in the back of their house to Ian Mackay coming out to visit during the Black Flag days to, you know, Mike Watt arrested and hassled by the police for having a mohawk. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. So um, he was uh, first mentor I had really. Uh, I was outside the school system. I, I went to school for a year in 88 and dropped out. And he was the first kind of teacher that I had um, after, you know, spending six, seven years kind of teaching myself how to do art. So what were some of the things that changed? Like you hadn't done art, like at that point, learning under him, having a mentor, what are some of the kind of key things you've learned? under him or kind of ways that he's affected what you're doing um he uh in the class itself that he was teaching the workshop that he's teaching to these cal arts kids um he sat down and he showed how to paint hair for example um how to use a brush he's not like he's one of those guys who he's too good of an artist to be a really good teacher so you had to kind of take the scraps that he offered Oh, you know what he did? He showed us, he busted out Milton Kniff and said, well, this guy is my teacher. He was like, this guy is the greatest artist. And I'm like, yeah, 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 because I've been hearing about how great Kniff was my entire life. Uh, back when I was a kid and I was reading Jules Pfeiffer's great American comic book heroes, and he was just, Pfeiffer couldn't shut up about Kniff. But I knew Kniff as the guy who did Steve Canyon and he was still, you know, I grew up in Ohio. That's he went to Ohio, Ohio State University. They would never, the dispatch would never stop running Steve Canyon until he died. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was like, it was just one of those things that you, you were told, told it was supposed to be good. 
and was just, it was a big mystery to me why it was good. So he had the flying buttress prints of Terry and the Pirates, the ones with the white blue spine and back. And I bought, uh, I started getting those and I couldn't believe how good Terry and the Pirates was. And I told Pettibone later, I thanked him for introducing me to Milton Kniff and he goes, I said, those are so well written. He goes, well, I don't read them. <laughs> I told him, well, take my word for it. The writing is excellent. That was, that was the first really mature American graphic novel work that was done. And I think, I think uh, Terry was the great, that, that was by far the greatest war, wartime American newspaper comic ever done. But I think what Gary Trudeau is doing, Trudeau is doing what Doonesbury is a close second. I think his, his stuff tackling, um, tackling the war and all the ramifications of people going to war is some of the best work being done in comics, right? In newspaper comics by far right now, and probably some of the best newspaper work ever. So, um, what else did I get from him? Oh, you know what he said that was really lovely was, uh, he just said, you know, he taught this workshop and he had everybody do work, compiled it, put it in a, put it in a zine. And he just said very simply, there's something really psychologically positive about seeing your work printed it, even if it's just a page in an anthology it's a zine that there's 10 copies of and um i thought that was a super encouraging thing to say yeah no that is um did you so you i, I get the idea that you've always really been into comic strips then because you're talking about kniff talking about these other guys um definitely do they kind of go hand in hand with reading comics or well, because um, it seemed to me like I'm kind of weird where I approach them really differently than my regular comic reading. Oh, really? Yeah. Like how differently? I maybe it's just I don't get into them as much. Huh. I don't know. <laughs> you think maybe it's a result of of well, I mean the current ones aren't even you know it's it's not even they're not even in the same league to the ones yeah. during the classic era. I have a big problem with the way so many of the books are reproduced. Um, you know, comic books should be something that you can take on the toilet. I live in New York. You should be able to take your comic in your bag without it, without it, you know, giving you a, a backache and read it on the subway. So the kitchen sink reprints of Nancy, I've read over and over again. They're mm -hmm. just, it's plenty. There's plenty of material. 120 to 150 pages is only a a quarter inch thick and it motivates you to read them I'll get like these thick 500 600 page coffee table books of Dick Tracy and I'm always a little it, it, there's always a barrier between me and the enjoyment of reading it but if I find a good reprint the flying, flying buttress reprints of Terry were amazing uh, much more readable than the Fantagraphics run even though Fantagraphics the quality of the printing is better it doesn't invite reading. It invites you, I don't know. I tried to read them on the subway before, and it's like, it's even hard to keep them, hold them still. Like, you balance the spine on your knee, and it's like train, the train <laughs> You can't even read the, you can't even look at it. So it doesn't flow like a comic. Same thing with Dick Tracy, but then I came across Gladstone Books, had like a bunch of Dick Tracy reprints. Mm-hmm. And I found a, a a copy. It was a stapled two dollar comic from nineteen ninety that you know, helped promote the movie. 
and I have the same stuff reprinted. I think he's, I forget what villain he's chasing, but there's a sequence where this villain hides himself in scoreboard of, like, you know how they have scoreboards in baseball games? Yeah. The guy hides himself in the scoreboard and discovers there's, like, a space heater in there or something, and there's, like, a whole, like, electrical system so the guy who's changing the numbers can take naps in between innings or whatever. And he's hiding himself in there, but it's during winter, and he's freezing his ass off. And anyways, I was reading this in the Gladstone. I mean, what a weird idea. You know, who would have thought of, like, having a, a, a fugitive hide himself in a winter? in a winter era, you know, what I call it, a board, a game board, scoreboard. And I found this in the, in the Gladstone reprints books, and it was amazing. And then I have the same version in my Dick Tracy reprint book, and I find it really impenetrable, and I get tired reading it. Um, does Suspect Device kind of follow that love of comic strips is it kind of like your way of kind of reflecting on them modernly yeah I mean I, I think so I, I don't it also is a kind of a testament to once you get your, your hand moving I think it's almost impossible to do a comic that you don't love um, as long as it's I mean unless it's a really bad situation where you're working for a boss and they're making you do work but when you have the freedom to do anything you want which is your situ which is the situation of everybody I invited to do this comic. Um, there's such joy in it. Mm -hmm. Every comic, every comic I've done has been very personal, including the, Glenn, the Henry and Glenn thing I just did, which is like one of the most personal comics I've ever done. But the um, suspect device would work if it was Nancy, but it would also work. You know, it's this mashup technique. For those those re you know listeners who haven't read it, it's I take. Nancy comic strip panels out of context and I throw I give them to a cartoonist and I'll say here's a, here's an end and here's a beginning panel and the first one Nancy's fishing and the last one she's sleeping you know make a story between the two um, and you know they'll probably come up with Nancy goes fishing and then goes to sleep but they, um, <laughs> they some of them are crazy <laughs> <laughs> something crazy like that but they um it's just about getting pushing people and getting the process started. Mm -hmm. I started doing that exercise with my students. Um, it was something I heard about through Tom Hart uh, when I was his TA uh, in 2007. He taught. He had all these great ideas for jump starting the creative process, and one of the one one of them was actually involved Steve Canyon. And another one we didn't get around to was Five Card Nancy. And I go, oh, what's that? And he goes, oh, it's this. And he described it to me, and I kind of, I kind of misunderstood. Five Card Nancy is actually Scott McCloud's exercise where you take five Nancy panels and you that are already drawn. It doesn't involve any drawing. It's like the, mm -hmm. some kind of game where you go, you take different panels and you collage them together. And I just thought from his vague, from his brief description that it was something else. So I'm teaching, and that's always uh, hit or miss. And I had a lot of assignments that worked and a lot that didn't. And I gave the students this assignment because I'd always wanted to do it. And I was really nervous because uh, I, I guess it's the urge to micromanage. It leaves them so much freedom. I wasn't sure if it would work. And I had done everything. I had done all of the, all of the assignments that 
Ivan Brunetti recommended in his book. I had done a lot of stuff that Matt Madden and Jessica Abel recommended in their book. And by the way, a lot of teachers I know also also utilize that book. Like um, Karina Muka told me that it was a muncha told me that she used that book a lot too. And uh, but I wanted to find my own device and I wanted to just do something different. And I gave them this assignment and I was like, and I explained to them how it worked. I'm like, stare at these panels until you come up with a story and I promise that will happen. And sure enough, I got the most interesting work right off the bat from the students. So my original idea was going to be that I, um, I do a book of all the student work but then it was just, it seemed too good of an idea to not take to the next level. So I started inviting cartoonists and um, that's how it happened. It all, all evolved out of my teaching. It seems like you've got a good community uh, around yourself right now, um, working with folks like Bob, for sure. Fox Brown, yep. Pat Ocilio. Like how is that for you as far as like your own creativity? Pat Alicio, Box Brown are like the best friends I've had in comics. Uh, Tom Hart too has like been a guardian angel of my career. Um, those guys though are awesome because uh, they really embraced me into the Philadelphia commu community. And I'm a New Yorker, but New Yorkers, um, New Yorkers, have, New Yorkers in general, New York artists in general have a much more closed off keep your cards close to your chest sort of attitude. You know, Hemingway, um, I read that Hemingway said that back in the day, the cardinal rule amongst other writers was uh, never compliment another writer's work. And I think there's, you know, New York with the tradition of it being, oh shit, you still there? Yeah. Oh, okay, my cat's doing, Azita? <laughs> I thought my cat unplugged my computer. Um, you know, there's a tradition of, uh, cartoonists, um, you know, playing the kind of cool, removed role. And I didn't, I need a lot of affirmation. I need affirmation every day from people. And um, luck, you know, the Philly guys have a lot less of a, you know, I've been really blessed to be kind of um, welcomed into their community. So collaborating with Pat has been amazing. Collaborating and being invited to do boxes retrofit uh, publication was it defined my entire last year of my life so um, yeah I, I couldn't be luckier one of the people you think which kind of surprised me and I'm curious what role he played is uh, Phil Jimenez oh yeah uh, and sorry if I mispronounced it Phil it's um, Jimenez Jimenez um, yeah. who does mainly pretty mainstream stuff um got a well, great mainstream style but it, it really surprised me seeing oh we're a million miles apart but he was one of the best teachers I've ever had by far he was he's a natural teacher really generous he is uh, yeah I took his course um, I really wanted to benefit from somebody who had such a structured approach to doing comics it was so much the opposite of of the way that I worked and uh, he made me do things that, like, you know, doing preparation for pages that I had never thought about doing. He'd have us design, he, you know, and, and he was smart enough to allow his, his platform for teaching to be expansive so that it could develop the, you know, the vision of somebody like me. So, you know, he started off the course and he was like, design a 
protagonist and an aber and a nemesis. You know, you can't. I was actually working on Bike Rider at the time, and it wasn't a superhero comic, but I made it. I, I made his assignments work for Bike Rider, and he was really encouraging. And um, I love that he's a gay cartoonist too. It's yeah. the awesome fucking thing in the world that I, I consider. I could be wrong about this, but I consider the mainstream comics community to you know superhero readers to be pretty well I know they're pretty I know it's male but I don't know if it's really conservative and sort of what's rea reactionary that could be sort of a bad generalization but I love that the guy who's doing their work for them is is um he's you know he's um he's like just an out proud gay man yeah it, it's awesome who's serving them up their their male their male hetero <laughs> yeah yeah no and he's been doing work for quite a while like i remember when i was reading that stuff when i was well, that was probably what 20 years ago yeah uh, he started with aqualad yeah and i think his mentor did that beautifully drawn aquaman series in the uh, 80s which is just an incredible series I mean, I don't know if it's well-written, but it's beautifully drawn. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, it looks like John Tottleburn did it or something. It's really wonderful. I think um, there is something about the, uh, the at least the American mainstream comics industry, which is pretty heteronormative. That's the word, heteronormative. Yeah. Um, and so it's good to see work by someone. And the funny thing is, like, I know a lot of... Uh, of gay comic readers who love mainstream comics is like it's a bunch of big buff dudes. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I used to, my friend used to have a roommate who was um, had a big Alex Ross painting poster of Aquaman on his wall, and uh, it was to him it was he loved him as a superhero. I think he also loved him as a gay icon. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, I don't know, Descendants of Tom of Finland or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Um, let's uh, jump into a little bit of uh, some of the other stuff you're doing um, you know kind of following up and talking about mainstream is you did a couple different comics where you kind of redrew the comics your own way one was the ROM which I guess was a benefit book for Bill Mantlow oh well it's just sort of it just has a message in the back saying okay. letters his daughter actually said that was like a a weird gray area as to how you could set it up so that the money would go to him. Um, so I actually never, I, I mean, I spent a thousand, fifteen hundred printing that. I don't think I've made that money back yet. But um, no, it was, I just love the guy's work. Um, I can't say that I was altruistic enough that I set up a fund for him. There's just a message in the back saying, I mean, online his brother had said to uh, send him letters if you want to support him. So I put, have the address there where you can write him and send him support. Um, I, you know, I, for people who don't know the story of Bill Manilow, he was he was a Marvel Comics writer, and uh, I really respect his work um, much more than I did as a teenager, to be honest. Uh, reading as an adult, I realized. I mean, I I loved a lot of mainstream creators. I loved Mark Grunewald. No, Manilow wasn't one of my favorites back when. Um, I think that he was uh, I think I don't think I was paying enough attention to how good he was 
and his career was cut short tragically because he was hit by a drunken, a hit and run driver. It's never caught, as you know. And he's been in a Brooklyn center for head trauma ever since. And it gives his work, like, it's just so, there's such a tragic sense to reading his work. And it's so ironic because so much of the work in Rom, especially, is about Rom pining away, being painfully aware that he used to have a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't consider, he considers himself to be not human anymore. And it's really sad and really has such a strong parallel to um, what, you know, the situation Bill Mantle ended up being in. I really can't think of anything crueler. His brother said in an interview that Bill is, spends most of his time, they asked him in this interview, what's he like? What's his mental state? And he said he's angry. And I mean, just think about how, I can't think of any time when I'm, the most unhappy is when I'm angry. Yeah. For him to be both physically fucked up to basically they say his thoughts are so disordered that he can't really, can't really, um, speak sentences that aren't completely kind of broken up and gibberish and he's just emotionally he's just angry that's it's really really sad it's really fucked up really and the fact that there's no recourse there's no like when you're a kid you think something bad happens you can kind of hit a reset button i can't imagine this happening to me and there's really nothing in the world to prevent it happening from any to any of us mm-hmm. no it's uh it's a pretty tragic story, and it's kind of fell to the wayside, but I think it's good to kind of remind folks of what Bill's going through, the challenges. I get, I get the sense that Rom, in particular, is getting is getting more of like a groundswell of support and as something that deserves to be recognized as a really special, great comic. Mm-hmm. More and more, um, James Kachalka, when I sent him Rom. He was so moved to, uh, he actually started writing some contacts at Marvel to say, you know, let's get this book back in print. Can we do something? I think there's some right stuff with that particular series. Uh-huh. Like, like, I don't think it was a necessarily a Marvel-owned thing. Oh, right, right, yeah. Oh, copyright. I thought you meant right stuff. Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of, yeah, there's a bunch of rights issues, but they're, nothing's impossible. They could be resolved. I know, yeah. um, Jason from Floating World told me that um, Bendis loves Rom, and uh, he as much clout as that guy has, it seems like people can move some money around to buy out whoever has the right. And you know they went through that with Spider-Man. Spider-Man had been basically sold to like five different people at fifty percent of it or something like that. <laughs> And that's why there wasn't a movie till the '90s. And even when the first movie came out, Marvel didn't see money from it. If if I, I I mean, I think I cared more ten years ago when the movie came out. I I don't, I don't even think I'd read the press now, but uh, yeah, that's where I remember. That's why I understood. And it was supposedly supposedly excuse me um impossibly tied up with rights issues, and those ended up being something that were, you know, lawyers find a way to yeah. negotiate. Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in a, in a sense, I'm very threatened by the idea of them doing ROM again. I mean, Bendis is a great writer, actually. Um, he, I was, was working at mainstream, co- I was working at a comic store, Cosmic Comics, until a year and a half ago. I, I got completely pleased every time a Bendis book came in. I learned a lot about writing from him, actually. 
I still think he's really impressive. Yeah, he he's spreading himself too thin. I don't know if he's going to keep on doing good work. It seems to be, you know, a huge precedent for people in mainstream comics who are good for a while and then they outstay their welcome in a really, really big way. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's hard to imagine because he's been doing so much. He was do, at a certain point, especially he was doing so much good work. But anyways, he supposedly wants to do a ROM book and he has clout and he could do it. And I just got to say, it's just like when it's like when punk rock became went above ground in the '90s, and you had to sit there and watch Tom Brokaw say the word mosh on on the news, and it's sort of like a surreal perversion of a culture that you love. But <laughs> ultimately, you know, that was <laughs> that was a big, big, uh, cold, cold splash of water in the face for a lot of people who are into that culture in the 90s. And I think it makes you grow up a little bit and say, here's here's what I loved, and this is something that, you know, you get sentimental about it. You say nobody can take it away, and it's true. So I don't think that the original series can be tainted in any way, no matter how hard they tried. Just like if I see people complain about them adapting movies and supposedly ruining a character that they uh, they loved. I'm, I'm, you know what? Let people do whatever they want. Let people who have the legal rights to adapt something do it. Who gives a fuck? It doesn't change the original work. I'm wondering, uh, with the process of redrawing a comic... Um, oh, yeah. How about the, the actual, like, of the comics itself? Like, do you try and take in uh, what the artist is doing, or is it just trying to capture the ideas? Oh, um, no, I try to do it, I try to imagine it a little bit different. It usually turns out, you know, when I did ROM, I was thinking to myself, you know, what if Anders Anders Nielsen did this book? Nielsen? Nielsen? Nielsen. 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 You know, what if, what if, you know, what if um, uh, E.C. Cigar was doing this book? And of course, when you, my stuff, I'm not an illustrator, so me trying to do stuff in that style turns out to be a huge, it falls way short. But I'm yeah. I try to shift it over and make it a little bit different. Um, I have a lot of respect for Sal Buscema, but I'm definitely trying to envision it um, in a way that's in a way that's uh, 180 degrees away from what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Not gonna do a Steve Ditko version. <laughs> God, that'd be great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, my my version of Ditko, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> Is it just filled with anger and, uh... <laughs> I just, you know, that guy, uh, I talked to, who was it? Um, I think, um, Brian Ralph said to me that mainstream cartoonists, they, they're like Chinese acrobats. They, people think that they'll go to school and they'll learn how to draw like them. In my opinion, people who can do a good mainstream style, they're already almost drawing it, drawing in a way that was almost Professional when they're already out of high school. Yeah. And Ditko had that. Ditko was an amazing teenage artist. He was amazing, amazing when he was trained by Bill, Bill Finger, I think. Jerry he, Robinson. Jerry Robinson, thank you. And you can see Jerry Robinson's amazing chops in Ditko's work. He, all, he never lost it. Um, I don't understand it. The way they do depths of shadow, all the things that make his stuff singular, um, it's something that's a little bit beyond me. Have you tried reading his new stuff? Um, small doses. 
it's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, Atlanta. are you a big fan? I've been reading some of it, and it's it's crazy, but I also love it in the way that it's just like an artist within their most pure singular vision. Like this is what he wants to do, and there's no one getting in the way, um, which I really appreciate. So, are you up to date with the stuff that like there's some books coming out that are like say copyright 2010 and 11? Are you like up to date with that stuff? I have it, but I'm about two years behind in okay. catching up. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I have the Avenging World. Mm -hmm. He's, I mean, it's to me the really fascinating thing is his art style has progressed in this kind of way of just like everything unneeded is stripped away. Huh. Which may turn off some folks, and other folks may really get into it. So, I love that. I love that you love that work. I think it's awesome. I really do. That's super cool. Comics are good. Got <laughs> you have a Fletcher Hanks tattoo and a Jack Kirby tattoo. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I got the Fletcher Hanks Hanks uh, one recently on my forty second birthday, and then on the middle of my ch and. It's on my chest, and then in the middle, the pit of my chest, I have Jack Kirby's image of Red Skull fantasizing about being king of the world, and he's kind of like sitting in a throne with like a special, special, special king outfit that Kirby imagined the Red Skull would want, and it's um, like big, big like kiss boots and a fancy, you know, Odin hat. And uh, I have that in the middle of my chest. It has not aged well. It's <laughs> I got it like eight years ago. And um, there's a reason why tattoo art is it's a, it's why it's redrawn and stylized. This is like a flat comic book image, and there were like there's cross hatching, which is blobbing together. And uh, I have to tell people that it's a Kirby image. Wow. <laughs> what is it about those particular guys that get uh, permanently etched onto you? Well, at this point, tattoo isn't a big deal. Um, you know, it's like I, I have a lot of them. And so it, the significance in terms of how much body space I'm dedicating to them isn't as big as it would be if it was, you know, like Johnny Ryan, I think he's got one tattoo of, Na of Nancy. It's a singular statement. Yeah. I well, think there's uh, a lot of folks with Nancy tattoos, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, Caitlin McGurk, she's got one. Um, Liz uh, Hickey. Hickey, Liz Hickey. Um, so those guys, gosh, why did I get... The Kirby one, I mean, he's just a ferocious artist. He's a life force, and I've loved him almost at every stage of my, of my life. And my, I loved him when I was 10. I loved him when I was 20. I loved him when I was, you know, I've never stopped loving him and never stopped discovering new things that he did. A new book that I sort of had disregarded, like The Demon, I thought was shitty 10 year, 20 years ago. Just oh, that's awesome. It's, that's one of the best things he's done. I totally agree. Well, that's prime Kirby era for me. It's like everything he did for DC, like that's him at the top of his game. And then Fletcher Hanks. Why did I get this image? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the little head, I guess. That tiny. <laughs> I, just, I could see the the Fletcher uh, style in your work. Good. I think that's. Oh God, I love that guy. Yeah. He's a pretty uh, interesting story. I wish we knew more. I know. I know. I really love. I've read 
I'm forget I'm drawing a blank on the guy who wrote put together the books. Oh, Paul Karasik. I read and reread and reread Paul Karasik's um, little postscript to issue one, and that's that's an incredible comic. Yeah. The, the implications of that are amazing, and what his son is such a character. Yeah. For folks who don't know, uh, Fletcher Hanks is pretty much a mystery to a lot of folks. Paul was able to find out some information. Um, but for the most part, he was an alcoholic cartoonist in the 40s. Uh, he would just show up, drop off his pages, and leave, uh, which was unusual at the time because most cartoonists in the 40s were kind of assembly line. There wasn't really, like, cartoonist cartoonists where they did the writing and the drawing and the lettering all together. Mm-hmm. Um, and his son really hard, had hardly any info on him. Yeah, it's, and except that his son revealed that he hated him with a passion, hated the father, that he watched him violently destroy his passion, his mother's face to the point where her bones bones were broken, that uh, and that he died alone, freezing to death in a snowstorm on a fucking park bench. It's really, really violent, and um, its work is good despite that. I get, you know, despite what kind of fucking person he was. Well, it's interesting to think about the work is it's very violent, very all or nothing, aggressive um, in itself. It was very kind of Old Testamenty. Yeah, my my, God. my this um my student Sabin um who might be listening to this, he actually was the one who told like I had got the book but was looking at it like a coffee table book. I wasn't reading them, and he was the one who was like, "Hey, you gotta." These are incredibly cruel stories. Um, I think it was Saban. It might have been another student. Um, it might have been my student, Lynn. And um, I was hard reading them. Yeah, and they they are about... As somebody once said in one of the reviews, it's about how this guy, Stardust, can do anything to anybody at any time in any way. Yeah. And, and the punishments that he comes up with for, for these, you know, gangsters and... Uh, spy uh, national spies are like incredibly incredibly inventive and cruel it's a really specific type of talent well it, it, and even the discovery of him is interesting because it was uh, Jerry Moriarty who was finding this work well that's wonderful and uh, he brought it to the guys at Raw like this was his discovery and said guys you gotta read this shit it's crazy um, and this is before they knew anything about him about this weird story to him it's just like Here's this interesting singular cartooning vision. Yeah, I saw this stuff in Raw when um, probably in 1990, mm-hmm. and um, I had no idea that Moriarty was responsible for that. That's great. Yeah, I mean Jerry's a pretty fascinating guy because he just he does his thing, and uh, in the 70s he'd be like, you know, this guy doing teaching fine art and painting, going yep. to comic conventions, and yeah. Love Jerry. He's great. Um, we're kind of nearing the end of our time here, uh, okay. so we should probably let folks know also, you ha- said you have a 35-page comic in Yeti coming out? Yeah, the next issue of Yeti that uh, Mike McGonigal puts out um, is going to have a 36-page 30, sequel to Rom in there. I cleverly disguised it to since, you know, I want to protect his his book. So it's the adaptation that I do of ROM number 23 is actually starring a character called Orm and I uh, redesigned him 
and that's coming out. I'm going to be in Henry and Gwen Forever and Ever, number two. Um, and I have Marvel Comics Presents coming out, uh, maybe in time for SPX, which is a four-way collaboration with me, Pat Alicio, Keenan Keller, and Michael Hawkins. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Reminder, folks, I've been talking to Josh Bayer. Uh, some of his other comics that you can find are raw power from uh, the fine folks at Retrofit Comics, as well as the self-published uh, ROM, which we were just mentioning, as well as Suspect Device uh, Book 2. Are there any copies of one left, or is it all? Yeah, yeah there's still about 250 copies. There we go. Still about 100 copies of raw power. Box is running low on them, so you can order raw power or anything else from my website, uh, joshbear.com. There we go. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. It was fun.
Sai.